Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen here with Real Clear Defense Editor David Craig. Today we are speaking with Elliot Ackerman, retired Marine, journalist, and novelist, most recently co author with retired Admiral James Devridis of 2034, a novel of the next world war. Elliot served eight years as a Marine in both the infantry and special operations, including multiple tours in Afghanistan. He's also a graduate of the Fletcher School of Diplomacy. He brings a unique perspective to both the experience of combat on the ground, as well as the strategic issues surrounding America's use of force in the world. Elliot, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks for having me on. Elliot, when we first arranged to talk with you, we were planning on talking about your new book, 2034, with Admiral Stavridis. And I, I, I want to get to that a little bit, but with the unraveling of events this week in Afghanistan, it would be uh, impossible not to talk about that. Uh, yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts on what is happening there. First, can you describe some of your experiences working with Afghan forces? You, you served as a combat advisor to an Afghan battalion, among other things. Um, I served as a, uh, I was a Marine Raider and so served in Afghanistan in 2008. And so my Marine Special Operations team were, were the advisors to the 207th uh, Afghan Commando Battalion. So that's like their, you know, their equivalent of the Army Rangers. And so and our mission was, you know, capture kill operations in Regional Command West against senior Taliban targets. So I did that. And then uh, I worked at CIA for few years and worked as part of their counterterrorism uh, counterterrorist pursuit team program, uh, which is also an Afghan counterterrorism unit. What was your day-to-day experience with them, your personal evaluation of them as warfighters? I mean, this is sort of the thing that really gets in my craw as I'm watching this and watching the administration's reaction to what's going on in Afghanistan. I would put the Afghan commandos and certainly uh, the CTPT I worked with at the agency on par with any conventional U.S. unit. Uh, these guys knew how to fight and they did fight. And oh, oh, by the way, the Afghans have been fighting for 20 years. In any year of their war, they were taking more killed and more wounded than we took in all 20 years of ours. So to sit here at the end after we, you know, pull the plugs, pull the rug out from under them and say, you guys want to really fight. When, when we're the ones who left, I mean, like, listen, I, I, not a lot gets me mad, but like that really gets me mad. Like that is, that is wrong. And oh, by the way, it's not like the, the Afghans are fighting the Taliban and the Taliban are just doing it all on their own. But the, you know, when I, when I was with the commandos, you know, our biggest target set were Taliban commanders who were equipped and trained by Iranian Revolutionary Guards Kutz Force guys because I was out West. And then when I was with the agency, I was in the East. And these guys all, all were going just, I mean, back and forth, back and forth across the border with Pakistan. Like, let me ask you this, what do you think would have happened if the Pakistanis said to the Taliban, sorry, no more sanctuary, no more support for you? You would have seen the Taliban collapse in Afghanistan. So I feel like what we're seeing is basically we are trying to, you know, we're, we're saying we're using Afghan incompetence as a cover for our own incompetence. And to me, that is incredibly dishonorable. Elliot, you just hit the golden nugget for me when you mentioned Pakistan. I got to be on Morning Joe a couple years ago, and we were supposed to be talking about Iraq. And then I can't think of his name, but he asked about Afghanistan. I'm like, oh, gosh, what a coincidence. I was in Helmand for a year in 2011. Um. And he asked me to 
ask about what it w- would be like for Lance Corporal. And I said, well, you know, the burning question for us was why are all these mid and senior level commanders living in Keta and running across back and forth across the border and we're not doing anything about it. And I, you know, and like your conversations with Basevich, I was like, you know, at, at what point were our, even our military leadership going to say, Hey, what, what are we doing here if we're not really attacking the problem? And then just real quick, getting back to what you said about the Afghans, we, we were giving them vital mechanic support for the aircraft, all the ISR to be able to prosecute the targets and intelligence. And then we pulled that from them. I mean, who would want to fight anyone if they didn't have any of those resources available to them? But I throw back to you, the though, that I'd like you to reference the Pakistan situation and what you think should have been done regarding Pakistan. I mean, you know, listen, it, it goes down to, you know, how do we how do we apply, you know, diplomatic and military pressure against the Pakistanis so that they're not continuing to support this war in Afghanistan? My, you know, my biggest critique of our now 20 year Afghan journey is, you know, the headline and the headline for most Americans who haven't been paying attention. And I understand why this is the headline for them is, wow, 20 year war. Like that's just too long for a war to go on for. You know, what's the matter with people? Why? Why can't they get it done in 20 years? But as you know, like the reality in Afghanistan is like at any given year, we were 12 to 18 months from telling them that we were leaving. So there was no type of confidence in us as partners or the enduring nature of our support when they are facing an adversary who does have very, very enduring support uh, from its backers. So, I mean, I'm sure you guys have all heard this you know, truism of Afghanistan, but, you know, in Afghanistan, the Americans have the watches and the Taliban have the time. And if at any point in that war, we have been able to convince our allies and our adversaries that we as Americans had both the watches and the time, this war would have had a very different outcome. And I would posit would have come to a conclusion far more swiftly you know, when I look back at Afghanistan, there's sort of, you know, there are certain inflection points in the war, one of which I would say was in 2009 when, you know, President Obama took office. He took office running on this idea that Iraq was the bad war, Afghanistan was the good war. We need to surge in Afghanistan as we just surged in Iraq, and we might see similar success there. And I think that was astute on his part. I mean, it allowed him to sort of be both a hawk when he campaigned and also a dove at the same time. And when he gave his speech in 2009 at West Point announcing the surge, in the exact same speech, he announces a drawdown in 18 months. Not only in that same speech, literally, if you look at the speech, the sentences are consecutive. And I was I was in Afghanistan when that happened. And, you know, I'm out there, as I'm sure many of you guys were, and probably many of these listeners were sitting down in meetings with district leaders, tribal elders. You know, and you guys know this counterinsurgency is very, it's very retail. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, running to be state assemblyman. Uh, and I'm shaking the hands. I'm saying, you know, we've got this road going up. We've got this school we're trying to build. The Afghan government's building this stuff. You know, Haji, whatever, Mullah, whatever. Like, we need your support. You know, you need to be one with the Afghan government. And even the ones who are amenable to this, I mean, would say to me, you know, okay, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. But your president just said you're leaving in 18 months and the Taliban shadow governor lives like two miles down the road 
he's going to be here after that. How can you expect me to do this? And so, you know, listen, um, in Vietnam, uh, if you've ever read uh, Sheenan's book, A Bright Shining Lie, about this guy, John Paul Van, who served the duration, basically, of the Vietnam War. And he famously said, the problem in Vietnam was not that we fought a seven-year war. The problem was that we fought seven one-year wars. And I would say the same holds true in Afghanistan. That's exactly what uh, General McMaster just said not too long ago when he was talking about this, I think, with Leon Panetta. And someone asked him, he said, we've been fighting 21-year wars in Afghanistan. And then this goes to your article you wrote recently for The Atlantic, I think, Plywood, where the Afghan army and the people we were trying to support never trusted that we were going to be there and stay there. So like you just mentioned about the Taliban, what was even worse perhaps is the fact that our allies that we were trying to build up had no trust or faith that we were going to stick around, which also led corruption. And I'll let you expound on that. Right. Well, I I think it's, I mean, listen, the way, you know, corruption is bad. No one should engage in acts of corruption and siphoning off money. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll say that unequivocally. However, I think as we've been sitting here as Americans sort of beating our chest moralistically, talking about corruption in Afghanistan, I think we've done very little uh, self-reflection on how we've contributed to an environment that creates rife corruption. And so if just imagine, I mean, just take two seconds. Imagine that you're an Afghan. Imagine that you are an Afghan and you are working in some capacity for the government or the military, and you have a young family, and you love your family as much as we Americans love our families. And you are looking at the prospects of your children and the prospects of your country, and you are suddenly in a position where you can start making a nest egg for them outside of that country. And when we're always one foot out the door, I mean, listen to me, I understand, I'm sympathetic. I understand why these people were creating these individual insurance policies because they were supporting us, but our support to them, you know, was not as, as unequivocal, at least in our rhetoric. And so what do you, you know, what do you expect? Um, and I think, and I think the thing that's 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 so bad is now we're seeing it play out in spades. So the corrupt Afghans, the ones who made their parachutes, got their passports, bought their property outside the country, today they're okay. The ones who maybe played by the rules today, if they're lucky, they're sitting in Kabul trying to figure out how the hell they're going to get to the airport. So let's take this back to 2001 to 2003. We we pushed them out. Um, what would you have done differently if you were calling the shots in Afghanistan? Yeah, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a piece recently just sort of trying to – like it's 20 years of war. And if you haven't been following it, it's difficult to sort of make sense of the whole thing. I think you can kind of break down the Afghan war right now into, uh, well, let me just wait. In a Shakespearean tragedy, there are five parts. So I would break down the Afghan war into parts. I would say the first part is that 2001, 2003 timeframe under President Bush. And I think the great tragic blunder that he makes 
is this pivot to Iraq. He takes his eye off the ball in a very in a very crucial moment, and also this sort of mission creep that it becomes this very expansive nation building project. Um, but it's it's under resourced, and by 2005 you start to see the Taliban reemerging. I'd say the second part of this tragedy tragedy is uh, what we just referenced with Obama when he surges to Afghanistan and the idea that we're surging as we're leaving. I'd say the third part um, really is President Trump. You know, this basically this bad deal. You know, our president, the deal maker, just made a really bad deal. Uh, and you know, and Biden did inherited a bad deal. It's not a great position to be in as a president. But I would say the fourth part of this is obviously what we're seeing right now and Biden pulling out. Uh, I would argue that as much as today, also some Americans might be saying, well, it's, it's tough, you know, and I think a lot of the rhetoric is, you know, we agree with the policy that America should have gotten out of Afghanistan. What we're upset with is how messy it is right now. I would say that's great, but guess what? Like America might be done with Afghanistan, but Afghanistan is not done with America. And there is going to be a fifth act to this. And that fifth act is whatever crawls out of the black hole that Afghanistan is turning into and comes and bites the West. So by the end there, we were down to 3,000 or 3,500-ish, uh, primarily doing air support and intelligence overwatch and things like that. I mean, what is the argument for simply keeping that small of a force there uh, in an extended capacity to prevent what, it, what we've been watching in the last couple of weeks? History. The idea that America has never won a foreign war without leaving troops behind. Where did this idea come from that the, the war is won and then ends when all the troops come home? The only wars in which all of the troops come home are the wars that we lose. You know, like we're the United States of America. You know, we were until very recently the world's sole superpower. Uh, you know, we're not like we're not Aruba. You know, we're not just sort of hanging out on our island and nothing else matters. You know, we have created what I think is a generally, you know, liberal, democratic world order. And the cost of that for us, which, oh, by the way, we enjoy because we are the beneficiaries of that order, is that our troops have been stationed around the world for decades. This is not anything new. Second World War, obviously, in Europe, we still have tens of thousands of troops there. Uh, Korean War, look at the Korean Peninsula. I mean, this is what's so spurious. If we were to pull all of our troops, our 25,000 troops off of the Korean Peninsula and say, we've been there too long, you're on your own, South Korea. You know, you don't think something would happen between the North Koreans and the Chinese on the Korean Peninsula? And is, does that mean the South Korean military is incompetent or that their people are cowards? Right, right. You know, it's, it's why has an American president not explained this to the American people? Because frankly, until about, I don't know, three weeks ago, like the American people kind of didn't really care about Afghanistan. And it's not because we're bad people. It's because we'd actually gotten the war to a state, you know, where it wasn't, it, it wasn't a lot of blood and it really wasn't a lot of treasure. Um, you know, more Americans died in 2020 in training accidents on Camp Pendleton than died in all of Afghanistan. And as you noted, we have troops down to 3,000. You might say, well, yeah, but we were kind of in the midst of a drawdown. All right, well, even before that drawdown, you know, we had them at, we had been at a peak of around 150 and we were down to around 10. And, you know, as a veteran, I wanted to get your thoughts. You know, I've talked to some friends. I think the thing that kind of offended me the most, too, I mean, 
I don't, it's hard to prioritize at this point, but all this goes on. Biden flies in from vacation on a helicopter, speaks for 20 minutes and then leaves on a helicopter back to vacation. And then that same day, Jake Sullivan is saying that President Biden had not consulted our allies regarding the hasty withdrawal, which is really now a non-combatant evacuation. I'm not sure I would even, it's more of a HADR than an EO, I think, at this point. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on that as well? I mean, you know, the optics on this are just terrible. I, I feel like we've just sustained a, a massive wound and like the swelling hasn't started yet. So we actually don't know right now how bad it is. I think that it is bad on a, you know, an anti-terrorism, you know, counter-terrorism level. Like, you know, they, you know, all the ISIS prisoners are out of bogger. I mean, you know, it just, it, in that respect, it's a disaster. America is now less safe. Geo, you know, geopolitically with regards to our standing in the world. Uh, I think it's, listen, I think people, people have been trotting out all sorts of arguments like comparisons. Obviously the big one has been, you know, oh, Saigon 75. We wish this was Saigon 75. You know, I would equate this. This is more Pearl Harbor uh, in so much as the scope of this. There are still, by most counts, thousands of American citizens inside of Afghanistan to say nothing of all of our partners inside of Afghanistan. We have set again, I mean, this, you know, who's got the watches and who's got the time. We've again made the same mistake and have said August 31st will be out a time-based versus a conditions-based withdrawal. So those Americans aren't going to all be rounded up and out of Afghanistan and to Kabul airport by August 31st. That is not happening. So what does that mean afterwards? And do we have Tehran 79, the Taliban are rounding these people up? Um, and I, you know, and I just, I bring out Pearl Harbor um, because this exceeds the scope of insurgents or terrorists making us look bad. This involves geostrategic shifts vis-a-vis our relationships with the Chinese, with the Russians, with, with Taiwan. I mean, how do you think they're watching this in Taiwan? Uh, and so I think, you know, how is this going to inform Chinese policy to Taiwan in the next five to 10 years and our resolve to protect our allies in, in South Asia and Southeast Asia? You know, this is a big deal. Well, the other part of this, too, that's upsetting, I think, for anyone in the military is if you spent any time in the military, you know there's a great deal of planning that goes on. The DOD definitely had plans to evacuate everyone, including our Afghan partners, in an orderly manner, as well as our equipment. But that didn't happen. What's your do you have any insight on that as well? I mean, Biden claimed that, you know, part of that was at the request of the Afghan government. Uh, I don't know if anybody buys that or uh, or not. But, you know, like, I mean, part of me is like, it's just basic manners. Like, it's stuff like my mother taught me, you know, like you don't have <laughs> themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Can we get can we get a statement from the Afghan government on that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So. Well, I think the, the 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 lack of coordination, even just with the NATO partner, with the coalition partners, is that's really really surprising. I mean, do you think this is a function that just no one thought that? No. 
<laughs> that it would be this quick, uh, you know. I was on, I, I, I wrote about this for The Atlantic in late April or early May about, uh, you know, Representative Moulton, Representative Crow. Uh, I was talking to those guys and their effort, you know, and Peter Mayer, you know, all of these, all vets, but many who were not vets, who are all in, co- in Congress. I mean, they're like, you know, not that far away, a mile away from the White House, screaming bloody murder. Like, you need to evacuate people now. This is going to be a disaster. These are not non-credible French voices. I mean, these are our members of Congress saying this very loudly to the administration and asking for meetings. Please meet with us. Silence. For months, silence. So, I mean, in, in many cases, you know, cities fell without any resistance. Afghan forces threw down their weapons or, you know, hid their uniforms and uh, melted away. I, I, I hear there's a certain strain of, you know, a kind of American, you know, Alamo mentality. Like, why didn't they go down fighting or something like that? I, I mean, can you just speak to the pragmatism of of from the Afghan forces perspective of making that decision of once they see the tables have turned, I mean, what's the point in losing another life and throwing down your life? I mean, first of all, you know, with due respect to the Afghans who did die fighting. And I know, you know, in many cases there were, you know, for instance, the Afghan, you know, commandos, uh, many of those units went down fighting in places like Lashkar Gah, uh, you know, in places like Khost. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, listen, I mean, uh, you know, my main man, Carl von Clausewitz, right? I mean, war is politics by other means. So when, you know, when the, when it's just clear, there's no will to fight, you know, when, and your supporters are melting away. I mean, listen, it doesn't surprise me. We saw the same thing happen in Iraq in 2014. I mean, you know, we, we saw the same thing happen in, in Germany during the Blitzkrieg. I mean, you know, this is, and I know, by the way, we saw the same thing happen when we invaded Afghanistan and invaded Iraq. So, uh, so it's, it's sort of like the old truism, you know, how do you go bankrupt? You go bankrupt, you know, gradually and then all at once. Right. You sort of mentioned China briefly. To me, you know, after I've absorbed what's gone on in Afghanistan for the past several days, you know, I, I did my graduate thesis on China and Southeast Asia. It seems strategically ignorant to not see how this benefits China because their BRI the Belt and Road Initiative. goes right yeah. to Afghanistan and to Pakistan, not just for their Belt and Road Initiative, right, uh, to get all the natural resources, but ultimately by doing so, they also encircle India. Can you speak to some of that as well? I just agree with you. It's beyond, I, I would say it's beyond ignorant. It's reckless. And we, he, you know, like let's, if we, if we're really zooming out right now, like this is happening in the same year as like January 6th, like what is going on in this country? You know, like a lot of people have been talking, myself included about, you know, like the black hole, you know, Afghanistan is going to turn into this black hole. It's this black hole Afghanistan's about to turn into who knows what's going to crawl the black hole. Like that's all really true. You know, it is turning into a black, it's going to be a very quick black hole in Afghanistan, but like, what about the black hole this country is turning into? Our own country. You know, where are our prayers? Where's our ability to think strategically? Um, it, it seems to have just vanished. And where is our, our, our will? Um, so I, 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 I'm, I'm beside myself. Like I just, and again, I mean, you're like, I'm not an angry guy. 
You know, I, 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 I don't like this stridency in my own voice, but, um, it, it's just, uh, to me is the incompetence is like, it's unspeakable. Let's talk about the ability to comment on these current events of, of the, the kind of the identity of being a veteran and being involved in these discussions. You know, recently you wrote a chapter for an anthology called Liberties and, and your piece was called Turning in My Card. Uh, and it's a pretty nuanced discussion of the double-edged nature of the deference that veterans are often afforded in, in some of these conversations. Um, and you wrote, be wary of people who pay fulsome respect to your identity because what they are actually paying respect to is identity's twin, victimhood. Can you talk about what your thoughts were in, in writing that essay and how that really ties into who we talk to and who we listen and how we uh, value uh, voices in, in the conversation that's happening right now about Afghanistan? Well, I think it, you know, kind of comes to what I was, you know, alluding to, which is the concerns. Listen, I think the greatest national security concern that the United States faces right now is the United States itself. And I don't mean that like with, oh, you know, right-wing lunatics are going to destroy us or, oh, beware of Antifa, they're going to destroy us. I mean, like, for a long time, you know, the United States, well, let me just wait, I don't know about the two of you guys, but like, I know for, but in the lead up to everything that's happened in the past year, you know, even before Trump or even before Trump, you know, I would have conversations with folks like, you know, I wonder if something really bad happened to this country again, you know, like 9-11, you know, as partisan and as vitriolic as things have become, like, do you think we'd be able to like come together like we did right after 9-11? And we would sort of, you know, we'll talk about scratch our heads. Well, 2020 delivers us the pandemic. And this has hardly been a year when the United States has come together. One of the things that makes right. you know, it's great is like we're this diffuse society, you know, we're like, like we're like, I'm, and I'm holding up my hands right now, but like we're like the equivalent of like jazz hands, you know, everyone's going all sorts of ways. It's great. But we in the past have always known how in critical moments to like go from jazz hands to two fists up uh, and come together. And it, it seems like, like we're not able to do that anymore. And if you go to a fight with jazz hands, you're going to get punched right in the nose. <laughs> so, um, so it kind of gets by this point of identity, right? So we are sitting here and we're talking about like, you know, did, didn't people understand the you know, geopolitical significance of this? Like, do, you know, people aren't paying attention, which is one of the problems. Are, you know, listen, I'm, I'm someone I've spoken to this for, like, I'm, I'm very much for a draft. I think um, a portion, at least a portion of the U.S. military should be drafted. If for no other reason, it will get Americans paying attention to the world uh, around them. Uh, and I think that, you know, right now, this whole Afghanistan debacle and the, the chaos that's going to come in its wake would be resonating differently if you had a 16-year-old child who would be heading into the military, inheriting this. It make us pay attention in a way that we haven't. So I think there is just a lot, there is, um, you know, there's a lot of complacency. Well, I think what was interesting about your article was really, you know, among Conservatives, I'll, I'll say broadly speaking, there there is an uh, a part of the tribal identity is a respect for people who serve in the military, and especially during the war on terror, there's there's developed this whole kind of 
you know, cosplay of operators and everybody wants to look like a special forces opera, you know, it's like, and you know, on Facebook, I get ads for tactical shorts. I don't know what tactical shorts are. You know, it's like there's, there's been kind of a rise of the fetishization of, of being war fighters. And, but the reality of the number of people who actually serve in the military, which is exactly what you alluded to is, is, is frighteningly small. Uh, you know, and, and as the war on terror has proceeded, our ability to fight it with fewer and fewer people, more machines, more drones, more, you know, uh, non-human intelligence, more special forces, it, it continues to disconnect people from the, you know, from the, the general price of it. I know that's complicated. And I think that's what I appreciate about the essay was that, you know, you were saying something about, People have this deference to people who've served, you know, rightfully so, I think on some level about you, you, there's a very small number of people who actually know what the experience of being in combat and losing human beings and, you know, the sacrifices that people make in their mental health. I mean, this, we don't even talk about suicides among veterans, let alone, you know, TBIs or lasting injuries, you know, the scars of war beyond casualties are, 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 are multiple. I think veterans clearly have a voice in that. But what you're saying in the article is more than that. Is like, you know, we should still be able to have an argument based on the, you know, the value of our arguments of what people are bringing to the table. And you, as a as a veteran, not just because you went to Fletcher, but you know, you should be able to talk about the strategy as well as the tactics. Well, absolutely. I think that you know, so that's sort of in the piece. What I get to is that, like, you know, the the issue. What's what's dangerous is when we and we're doing this in our society. We're kind of like we balkanized our society. We're Everyone has a hyphen. Everyone, everyone has their own little piece of turf that's theirs, and no one else is allowed to encroach on it. So if I'm a veteran, like my piece of turf is what the national security of our country. Like that's too much of a big. That's that's a very big piece of turf. Like everyone should be allowed to contribute to these conversations because they affect everyone. Like and to give you just sort of a thing of an example of this mentality is even like since this stuff has all happened with Afghanistan, you know, I've had people in my life or, you know, around me who have come up to me, well-meaning people, mind you, and like said and put like a hand on my arm, like, I'm so sorry about what's going on in Afghanistan. As though a friend of mine whom they did not know had passed away or was diagnosed with a very bad sickness. And I want to grab these people and be like, don't say sorry to me. Like, be sorry for yourself. Like, this affects you. Uh, You know, you need to understand how this affects you. Um, you should care. This isn't going on to other people. This is going to affect you. And we have lost sight of that. Um, and, and the thing that I think, and I can this as well is because ultimately, and again, I, I'm not trying to aspire like bad motives on people. I think this is just people do this unconsciously. They don't even know they're doing it. They're sort of like, I'm so sorry. Cause they're thinking that you're a victim of this thing that doesn't involve them. And uh, and that's very dangerous. You're basically, you're othering people who you should not be othering in a certain way. Like we're all like, we're Americans. I mean, I, I really don't like playing this hyphenation game. I think it is just, it is caustic. It is acid on our society. Um, we're all Americans. And if you, well, guess what? Uh, I might've served in uniform and my identity might be like, obviously I'm on the real defense podcast right now. I mean, it's very <laughs> obvious, but you know what? There are people walking around who never served in uniform and, and these wars touch them because they've got a very good friend in uniform or they've got a, a, a family member who lives overseas or whatever. These issues affect us all or literally just because they're a taxpayer. I mean, I've written about this, but, you know, when I came back from the wars, like for, you know, 
I was sort of surprised, but on a number of occasions, again, well-meaning people would come up to me and try to engage me about my experiences. And they would say to me, like, did you have to kill anybody over there? And the first time I got that question, I was sort of like taken aback, like, wow, like, that's a very intense and personal question. But I got asked it with enough frequency, like I had to have a response. And the response I sort of settled on was, um, well, if I did, you paid me to do it. Just because like, this is yours too. We are all part of the same thing. And if we lose sight of that, really bad decisions start getting made. So for, you know, saying thank you for your service is literally the least they can do. And and so what you're asking people to do is to try and emotionally, psychologically take on some of the involvement of what we have asked uh, men and women to be doing yeah, I mean, uh, overseas. Hey, like, thank you for paying your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, this 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 touches on it as well. I mean, you were awarded a silver star in Iraq, and you've you've written about this previously. But you know, what is it like to be called a hero? I, I have to imagine that star represents possibly one of the worst days of your life. Um, you know, or, or at least a really hard day. You know, what is it? What does it mean to be called a hero when you in that way? Well, I, th- I mean, I think you know anyone who has you know received a valor award or, or had those experiences, yes, understands that there is this duality of you're being honored for what is probably one of the worst days of your life, and you're also very cognizant of the fact that you're being recognized and there are many others who are not being recognized for doing very similar things. And listen, I'm not like saying that in some type of like BS false modesty. I'm saying that as a guy who has ridden Silver Star and Navy Cross citations himself. You know, I know what goes into these awards and um, it's a nice way to to recognize folks and to also recognize people who weren't there. You know, I, without getting into names, there was a Marine I served with who was awarded a Navy Cross. And when he found out he had received the Navy Cross, he basically said, he was very religious and he had his religious reasons for it. He said, I don't want it. You can keep your damn Navy Cross. And so, you know, a lot of it is sort of controversial when he did that. Um, and one of, the, one of the points I made to him, um, uh, he was in my platoon, just encouraging him to accept this award um, was, listen, a lot of guys want to be able to, see, whether you want it or not, there are guys in this platoon who would like to say, who are with you that day, like, I was with him. When he, you know, it's like being able to say, like, I was with machine gun John Bassalone on Guadalcanal. You know, uh, if you're an old man, like, that's pretty cool to be able to say. So it's, you know, these, it's not, you know, it's, it's never a recognition just for one person. It's a recognition, I think, frequently for everyone who was there. But, um, yeah. You know, again, kind of flowing out of this, uh, this uh, discussion about identity you know, you're more than just a veteran. You, uh, you know, that, that is not the sum totality of your being. You, you know, you've gone on, you've written these novels, you've written, uh, this book. I, I, I kind of don't want to skip over the fact that you wrote this, this recent book, 2034, cause it's a, it's a great read. And I recommend that our listeners check it out. It's essentially a cautionary tale about the over-reliance on technology and, and in part the rising military threat of China. Do you see any connections to what is going on in Afghanistan? Was the U.S. plan to forge the Afghan army in some ways in its own image over-reliant on technology? Was it, should we have been creating a force that somehow paralleled the Taliban in, in, a, in, a, in a more, you know, their approach is essentially, you know, fast, light, low-tech, overwhelming um, 
how does how do you see that the understanding of what you've been writing about recently and connecting that back to what's happening in, in Afghanistan? Well, I would say one of the dangers of writing a work of uh, speculative fiction um, is that inevitably within a very short period of time, you're going to be proven wrong about what you speculate. And so I got, I actually got just the other day, a piece of this is all this was happening, a piece of reader, you know, reader mail, um, which I always like getting that basically, but it was very curt. It was like, Hey, Elliot, you were wrong. Herat didn't fall in 2029, you know, John. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, that is definitely missing the forest for the trees. Uh, yeah. It actually made me laugh, you know, to the, to what we got, I think what we got wrong over there, you know, with the F, you know, we talked about a little bit of the Afghan security forces. Um, I think one of the challenges that existed from the outset in Afghanistan was, you know, we were trying and, and this has been said, but, you know, we, we built an army that looked a lot like us and we were trying to make an army that looked like us. And there was good reason to do that. Um, I think most critically, we were trying to make it look like us and that we were trying to create a nas- truly a national army. And the Afghan National Army was recruited nationally. So if you were from Kunduz, you got recruited into a unit that could be deployed down to Helmand. And, uh, and there were reasons for doing that. I think one of the reasons that for doing that, particularly in the early days, was, you know, obviously Afghanistan has a long history of warlordism. And so if you recruited regionally or tribally, um, you very quickly would have wound up with, with what they'd had right when we showed up in 2001, which were these tribal regional armies that were all contesting one another and all in competition to claim they were the legitimate you know, power source in Afghanistan. And this is at a time when we were trying to stand up like a very, you know, a very fragile, nascent, centralized government. So I understand why that decision was made. Unfortunately, the result of that is that many of those regional and particularly tribal structures, which are forms of, you know, huge forms of accountability in Afghanistan, uh, we did not have access to those. And it also hindered our ability to effectively wage a counterinsurgency because we didn't ever truly have local partners because, as you guys know, if you're a Hazara from Mazari Sharif and you're hanging out down at Helmand province, you're as foreign as the Americans. Um, so you're not going to leverage your Afghanness down in Helmand. So, um, and one experience, an experience that I had, frankly, in the agency, which really brought this into stark relief for me was, you know, I worked with the commandos who, again, were a great unit, but they were a national unit. And I saw these, these issues even ma- manifest, even in them at times, um, at the agency, the counterterrorisms we use weren't actually working directly for the Afghan government. They worked for the American government. And a- as such, we recruited them locally and frequently those units were all members of at least the same tribe, frequently the same three or four families. So when like, you know, Lance Corporal Schmitty, you know, Lance Corporal Al Schmitty, you know, forgets his night vision goggles on the range, like his cousin, who is also his squad leader, you know, knocks him on the side of the head, like, what's wrong with you? I'm going to tell you, you know, and there was actually very, very strong discipline in those units. But it was because you were able to rely on those structures. Um, so it was, you know, it was a trade-off we made. I can't say that things would necessarily ended better if we hadn't built a national army because you could have had this, you know, we built regional armies and then you couldn't, and then the, the post-mortem we'd be doing was, well, we never should have done that because it made it impossible for the president of Afghanistan, and the Kabul government to really exercise power. And that's why we're losing. Um, I don't know. You know, these are, those are tough decisions. And, um, yeah, I mean, there was, there was in the, in the early stages of the war, again, when we had an even lighter footprint, that, that was the plan, right, is to reform the Northern Alliance. The idea that we could bring together a, you know, a combined force of tribes. I mean, did you ever see 
the emergence of of a national identity? Yes. I, I hear this all the time. And frankly, this is one that I'm like, this is just ignorant. But when people are like, well, you know, these folks have never had a country here in the first place. And what are we I'm like? I'm like, yeah, stop. All right. First of all, you're confusing Afghanistan with Iraq, which really drives me crazy. They're two different wars. OK, Iraq is Sykes Peacoat. Iraq is in the Middle East. They're Arabs. Afghans are Afghans. And Afghans will tell you they are very Afghan. I mean, they have their tribal identities. That's a huge sense of identity for them. But yes, there's always been a sense of Afghanistan. Afghanistan absolutely is a country. I mean, spend two seconds there. You're going to have some Afghan telling you all about how his great grandfather kicked the crap out of the British in the 1840s uh, as an Afghan. So um, they just also have, like us as Americans, they also have these very other identities that are strong sub-identities. Uh, and that are worth recognizing, understanding, and leveraging. But this, like this idea, I don't even know how it's made it into, like, the the Twitter sphere that Afghanistan is. Oh, well, it's never been a real country. I don't know if you guys have seen that kind of asserted in places, but um, it's just it's just factually wrong. Right. Well, I mean, I think even to to take the slightly more reasonable version of that article uh, argument is uh, that there was among the forces, a lack of confidence in the central government. The central government, I mean, even, you know, they they fought for over the last election for what, over, you know, like a year and ended up with a power sharing agreement. I mean, there was, you know, not a, I, I guess the way to reframe that question is they may have had a national identity, but there was certainly no faith in the centralized government of that. Absolutely. I think if you want, as an American, if you want to understand kind of maybe what just like dynamics feel like in Afghanistan, perhaps think about our own national dynamics and dump some kerosene on the worst parts of it. And you get a little bit, I mean, you know, like, yes, they had to negotiate a power sharing agreement. Like look at our last election. You know, I'm not saying we're Afghanistan, but I'm saying, you know, you can imagine how in places where identity is getting really fractious and there are very bitter, bitter partisan rivalries you know, you don't have smooth elections. Um, that doesn't mean you don't have a national identity. We certainly have a national identity as Americans, but we, we you know, we have real conflict right now in our sub-identities. Yeah, you kind of brought up the, the war within, and there's been a few generals and even civilians this week that have brought up the point that the people on the National Security Council for Biden have no overseas experience. They have no buy-in. They have these prestigious... Ivy League degrees, but they have no boots on the ground per se. And it made me remember of Sebastian Younger's recent book, Freedom, and the quote I took out of it that really stuck with me, which was, to be a leader, you have to have sacrificed. And if you haven't sacrificed, you're really just an opportunist. And that sort of reminds me of what the political, you know, we've developed a political class that is in a league of their own, apolitically. I mean, both parties are part of it, you know. They, the fact that they don't realize that they have a 20% approval rating is kind of stunning to me. Um, and they're fighting over things and never really get to the root of the cause. And repeatedly, we're getting people in these NSC positions, regardless of party, that have kind of questionable experience as to whether or not they're suited for the, some of these positions. I mean, some of the remarks coming out since Sunday are just kind of stunning at times. Uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, one of the um, one of the weaknesses of our 
administrative structure in the United States is that at uh, various agencies and departments, there is a very deep reliance on political appointees versus career professionals. And, um, uh, you know, I live in D.C. and uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a bit older was telling me she was telling me sort of a self-deprecating story, but she was up for a appointment in a, in a prior administration. And she was interested in this job. And um, and uh, they kind of came back to her and they said, we're not sure we're going to be able to offer you the principal position. She said, OK, understood. She said, well, listen. In that case, you know, I just want to say I would be very interested in the deputy's position. I said, yeah, well, you're actually not qualified for the deputy position. You're only qualified for the principal's position because the deputy position wasn't a, you know, wasn't, a, <laughs> you know, wasn't like a, you know, someone who had no experience. Like it's, you know, the, the deputy was like the person who actually knew what was going on. But you see that play out time and time again, where you have folks who do have very deep experience who are the, you know, partic- I'm particularly in the realm of national defense, um, and they're never the principal decision maker. They're always, uh, and I don't mean this like at the secretary level where, yes, I absolutely believe, of course, you know, the president should be able to appoint the secretary of defense, but I'm talking, you know, like deputy assistant secretary, you know, you get pretty low to, and, and they're political appointees. And, um, you know, they, it stands in the way of having a truly professional uh, national security staff across all agencies. And I think that's something we need to look at. I, you know, like if you look at the Brits, for instance, the Brits do it very differently. They have far, far fewer political appointees and allow far, far fewer than we do. But obviously for us, we allow so many of them because it's, you know, it's a card you can offer up to get support for people as you're running for election. But the cost of that is this sort of amateur, at least what we've seen emerge is a really amateurish quality, particularly with regards to our foreign policy, but it also extends to other agencies outside of foreign policy. So I want to start to wind this up a little bit. Just looking forward with the state of things being what they are, how do we mitigate the situation that that we're in? Well, I'm going to sort of give you the short term because I think it informs a little bit of the long term. Uh, We need to figure out how to shut this thing down in a more orderly way. You know, there's been obviously a lot of references made to Saigon in 1975. You know, I was referencing Pearl Harbor a little bit. Again, I think the one, I think what the administration is playing for right now is to not have, you know, Tehran 1979 on their hands, where they're, where our allies or our citizens, listen, they're going to be, our allies and our citizens are there. They are still going to be remaining in Afghanistan after August 31st. I mean, I, 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 I have a very hard time imagining this is all going to get wrapped up by August 31st. And so uh, we need to figure out how to get them out. Uh, And I think all hands need to turn to that. I think we need to be creative about that. Um, Right now, the only, it seems the only piece of ground we have to work with is Kabul International Airport. A huge challenge there is not necessarily the operation of the airport. It's how do people get to the airport? You know, are there going to be lists? Are we going to, are we going to be gathering lists? So these are our friends and everyone at SIV. Then are we going to we're going to hand those lists to the Taliban so these people can get through checkpoints? Like I don't know how sound of a strategy that is uh, unless you're going to you know I mean you know I mean like the Taliban are not good guys. Like, these are not people to be trusted. I mean these are these are Nazis and I don't use that word lightly. Like they are truly Nazis. So. Um, what, you know, what are creative things to do? You know, you mentioned Masood. Um, 
his son, you know, the son of Ahmed Shah Massoud, his son Ahmed Massoud, along with Saleh, the former VP, they're actually in the Panjshir Valley. And the Panjshir Valley is the only part of Afghanistan that has not fallen to the Taliban. And they are have gone there and they say they're reconstituting you know, Northern Alliance 2.0. Um, perhaps we should be in touch with Saleh and Massoud and saying, you know, we are going to send in troops right now. We are going to bulldoze an expeditionary airfield that is C-130 capable. And we're going to tell everyone, get to the Panjshir Valley and we'll get you out and start running flights from there. Because I would imagine it's probably at this point easier to get out of Kabul than to get into the Kabul airport with the Taliban. But we need to be thinking very, very creatively. We've got to wrap this up because how we wrap this up, meaning the evacuation of our citizens and allies, is going to inform our posture as we move forward. So if we wrap this up, knocked way back on our heels or maybe on our ass, it's going to be very difficult for us to sort of pivot forward in the region. If we're able to sort of salvage this thing in some way, um, you know, maybe maybe that allows us to, you know, to, to move to, a, it, you know, if not a position of strength, at least a position of less weakness. You know, you were referring to the political appointees and, and the, the guidance of our, our strategy over the past 20 years. We certainly have seen an arc, uh, a Shakespearean arc, as you uh, referred to it earlier, from the belief in democracy promotion and the potential for nation building to uh, where we are today. Do you think that strand in American politics is buried for a while? Listen, I think America believing in itself is a good thing. Sometimes America believing in itself a little too much has gotten us in trouble. <laughs> But I am, I am longing for the days when this country believes in itself again. David, do you have any final thoughts on that note? No, I mean, I think Elliot hit it on the head. Well, Elliot, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for your, your insights and, and thoughts on this. We will have to end it there for today. Elliot Ackerman, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military, defense, and national security issues that matter. For David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.